Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Sydney Johnson. Today, we're talking with Steve Blank, who many people in the startup world know as the father of the lean startup movement, a business philosophy that's sort of taken startups in Silicon Valley by storm in recent years. Steve himself has a long history of working in startups, but also as an academic, teaching business and innovation at schools like Stanford, Berkeley, Columbia, and NYU. His course on the Lean Method, which we'll get to later, is taught at more than 75 schools around the world and was one of the earliest to appear on the online course platform Udacity. We wanted to talk to Steve about both his business and teaching careers. And for full disclosure, Steve was an early investor in EdSurge. So let's dig into it right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Steve, on your website, one of the first things you mention about yourself and your bio is that you may have been voted the least likely to succeed at your high school. So I'm wondering if you can start off by just telling us a little bit about that background. Well, you know, I would have been voted uh, less likely to succeed because I grew up in a dysfunctional family where survival was my main job. And in hindsight, the ability to to survive was paramount above all of the things, including school and homework. And um, I went to school in Michigan, but uh, quickly dropped out during the Vietnam War and ended up joining the Air Force, uh, getting sent to Southeast Asia. And actually uh, learned that I was pretty good at uh, two things. One is uh, pattern recognition, and the other is uh, collecting large amounts of data. Those were the two things that I think have lasted me my both business career and academic career. Uh, yeah, I went back to school in Michigan, but then joined a startup in Ann Arbor in the middle of the 1970s that sent me out to Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley was booming at the time with jobs and chip companies and electronic companies. And there was no consumer electronics, but it was the center of the uh, uh, semiconductor universe and actually defense universe at the time. And so I got my first of a series of jobs with increasing responsibility in Silicon Valley. I, I did eight startups, uh, eventually becoming co-founder, founder, president of companies, and and did that for 21 years, 24-7. So how did your ideas behind the Lean Startup come about? So, so as a practitioner, that is, as an entrepreneur in the 20th century, we were told in not so many words that startups were nothing more than smaller versions of large companies. You had an idea, you wrote a plan, you turned that into a set of slides, you raised money, and then you executed for the plan. That is, the VCs funded this idea, and you came up with, here's how we're going to hire, and here's when we're going to ship the product, and here's how we're going to build it. And you basically try to do that step by step. And, and there was very little notion, not no notion, but very little notion that the plan was actually a set of hypotheses. And we were always surprised that you know, startups didn't turn out the way we thought they did or would in our business plan. And the big idea is that VCs simply assumed that any failure to execute the plan was a failure of the founders or the key people in the company. And so they tended to fire people. And each new person would come in with a slightly different idea. And so successful startups would eventually, what we now call pivot by firing people rather than 
understanding that what they should have been doing is firing the plant. I kind of knew this in the back of my head that there was something wrong, but you know what? I just kind of did it like everybody else in Silicon Valley until I had time to retire and start thinking about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship. So you were exploring these ideas and can you explain sort of just what the key tenets are of the lean startup and, and what this model looks like? The first thing I, I started observing, actually I started writing my memoirs in business and I realized what I was doing was summarizing all the things I had learned in each company. And, and I remember sitting there writing this and the hair started standing up on my back of my neck because I realized that there was a pattern there that I had never recognized and no one else had ever at least explained, which was simply that companies that try to execute the plan and not change tended to fail more often than those who got out of the building and actually searched for what was the right thing they should be building. That is, what were the right set of features? Who were the right customers? What was the right pricing? Rather than just blindly trying to execute a plan, the big idea was that startups were trying to copy what large companies did. Well, large companies execute known business models, which is a fancy way for saying large companies got large because they know what features they want. They know what the who competitors are. But startups aren't executing anything at all. Startups are actually searching for business model. This difference between search and execution had never been articulated before. Everything was called innovation. And if you read the literature at the time, 99% of the literature, if, when you read about innovation in companies, was about innovation in large corporations. There wasn't a corpus or a body of work describing innovation in startups. Great literature about corporate innovation. Um, and in fact, so I started reading all of it. I started reading all the corporate innovation literature and realized that there was a process we could build about getting founders out of the building. And I came up with this heuristic that said, there are no facts inside your building, so get the heck outside. Built, built a process called customer development which kicked off the lean startup model called the four steps to the epiphany. And that just basically said, look, all you have on day one inside your building, I don't care whether the VCs gave you money or not, or, 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 or you don't have money, but all you have is a series of untested hypotheses. So why don't we get outside and, and humor me and validate those hypotheses? And so the lean startup started with my customer development process. But very quickly, I started actually talking about this and teaching it at Berkeley. We ran into this fact that in the 20th century, products were built in a serial process, a step at a time. But one of my students, Eric Reese, observed that in the 21st century, people were building products using agile methodologies, which is a fancy word for saying they were building products incrementally and iteratively. That is, building a piece, testing it, and I said, and Eric said, why don't we combine agile engineering with this customer development process so we could put things in front of customers early and often. And, and those things, um, which I called minimum feature sets, and Eric had a much better name called minimum viable products, allowed us to, as we get out of the building and, and got feedback, now actually allowed us to get feedback on actual pieces of products or services or even pricing or channel choices. And it also allowed us to do something which was just unheard of in the 20th century, this notion of a pivot. A pivot is defined as a substantive change to one or more of the components of the business model, meaning, gee, I thought my customers would be these types of people. Holy cow, they're over here. 
Mm -hmm. Or I thought the customers would love these features, but they actually love features 2, 9, and 12. Well, why don't we just focus on that for a while because they're grabbing those out of our hands. Mm -hmm. So it gives you permission, which you never had before in the 20th century, to change some of the fundamental premises of what you're doing. Parts of the Lean Startup model seems to echo that Silicon Valley mantra of move fast and break things. I'm curious, first of all, if, if you agree with that and if you think that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, move fast and break things is kind of something that sounds good at the surface, but you really want to understand what the heck that means. Um, you know, move fast, of course, that's the a differentiator between startups and large companies. Break things, um, I, I'm not sure I understand what that means. <laughs> um, you know, break things on purpose, well, that's certainly not a goal for lean. If it means it's allowed, you're allowed to make mistakes, I'll understand it. The whole idea about lean, which is very different in large companies, is that we expect that you're wrong. It's not that we like to fail fast. It's that in, in Lean, what we're doing is we're testing a series of guesses, and implicitly, most of them are going to be wrong. Maybe the better mantra is move fast and test things. I'm also curious if you think that, that the Lean model can be applied to all industries. In particular, I'm thinking about education, which is what we look at. Is this model in the best interest of the user if, if it's a student or a resource-strapped school on the other end? Yeah, so, you know, Lean is a, meth a methodology, not the methodology, that worked in a, and was designed, at least my intent, for a very specific set of circumstances, surprisingly, which are mostly still valid today, but, you know, it's not a religion. And, mm -hmm. and let me just go back and remind people at least what my intent was was that uh, post-dot-com crash, uh, it's hard to imagine now, but venture capitalists were hiding under their desks, literally. You know, they, they weren't writing checks, funds were underwater. Mm -hmm. So Lean was designed for a time when you needed to optimize your cash and make sure that everything you did had some evidence and probability of success. Yeah. But do it at speed. Now let's fast forward today. You know, some startups are raising hundreds of millions or billions of dollars still and, and revenue and profit are, you know, certainly not the key mantras. It might be, you know, user growth. It might be something else, might be revenue growth and no profit. I mean, and so therefore you have to decide whether lean is still appropriate or gee, let's spend the cash as fast as we can because we want to become a unicorn. Back to your question about how does it apply to education? Well, it, it certainly depends about, are we talking about an education startup? Are we talking about an existing school system? Are we talking about a large, you know, university or large existing program? You know, lean is appropriate in different ways in different um, times and different organizations. For example, lean works great in startups that are cash constrained and resource constrained. Lean, um, works poorly in large corporations unless you actually do a lot of other things around it, which we call an innovation pipeline. Hmm. Lean is even tougher inside of government agencies, which have even more constraints than, than companies and certainly a lot more than startups. 
and by the way, the mistake for companies and government agencies is looking at all these startup tools and techniques we now have and saying, oh, all I need to do is run them inside of my large company and somehow magic will happen. And it turns out what we end up there is with innovation theater, not really innovation. Um, you know, there's, there's lean, but there's plenty of other models and ideas about how to make startups work. But we know that still, even today, most startups fail. So I'm curious from your perspective as an educator, how much of this can actually be taught? And are starry-eyed entrepreneurs going to listen? Yeah, so one of the interesting things about entrepreneurial education is confusing teaching entrepreneurship with teaching accounting. It, it, it's not the same. Hmm. You know, entrepreneurship and innovation is a experiential hands-on activity. It, it's not a, a process you could teach out of the book. And I think the mistake has been, again, thinking that entrepreneurs are accountants. They're not entrepreneurs, and I mean founders to start with, are as close to artists as any other profession. That's a big idea for an educator. And we've figured out over the last 500 years how to teach art during the Renaissance. We realized that, yes, you want to teach some theory, you know, for artists, for painters. It was color and perspective and other things. And, you know, for musicians, there were other tools for theory. But, but essentially, art is a set of apprenticeships and hands-on practice. It's an experiential type of activity for teaching. So when I teach, the classes I tend to build are the kind of capstone classes for um, people who have already decided that they want to go to the equivalent of Juilliard. They're hands-on experiential classes that teach theory but insist on practice. And by the way, when I first came up with this methodology of teaching lean startup at, at Stanford, again, I had reactions from other places that said, oh, no, we teach this with case studies and students, you know, we give them rigor. We, you know, that, that's wonderful. But that's not how we teach. You know, we don't teach medicine that way. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, we teach a ton of theory, but can you imagine going to a brain surgeon who's never cracked a, you know, a skull or a you know, heart surgeon never cracked a chest in a residency. I mean, you would run away fast. A lot has changed since you developed the Lean Startup Framework. Um, I mean, we've seen a lot of small startups turn very big. Many, if, if not most, have failed and, and some have stood before Congress. So is the Lean Startup, as you originally wrote it, still applicable today? Oh, so... Of course, the lean startup is, is still applicable. It's a question of where is it applicable? As, mm. as I mentioned earlier, if you have infinite cash, I would take everything I've ever wrote about lean startups, go to the tallest building you could find and tear it into pieces and throw it over the side. Um, because infinite cash, just as a thought experiment, makes up for you know pivots and whatever. Just spend your way to the solution. Lean was not designed for those circumstances. Lean was designed for a cash-constrained and resource-constrained environment, which in some cases today just doesn't exist. I don't think many people in education have that problem, but if you are lucky enough to have that problem, for God's sake, don't get trapped into dogma. Um, figure out what method is best for you. The second is, though, that, that what we've seen in Lean for Education is a pretty rapid adoption of not only 
the concept of lean, but lean startup classes. Uh, my Stanford class called the Lean Launchpad is now being taught in, I don't know, a hundred different schools across the, across the world. And so Lean's kind of grown into uh, into a number of variants, a number of uh, ways it's taught, and in a number of places. At the same time, we've kind of spun out different versions of the class where the original Lean startup classes were designed for people who had ideas, who wanted to figure out all the components of turning it into a company. But at the same time, I've always had a, a feeling that my students, it, at least in the universities I taught, had little connection with the government uh, at all. Uh, they, they maybe would vote, but that was about it. And the government was thought of as, at, at best, you know, something you could ignore and at worst an adversary. And I thought that was a mistake. I think we've run a, a long-term 40-year science experiment of what happens when we disconnect the body populace from any consequences of our foreign policy as we eliminated all national services. And I don't think that's been healthy for our country. So that's the sidebar to explain the next set of lean classes we started was called Hacking for Diplomacy, Hacking for Defense, Hacking for Energy, which connected students to government problems, real problems, not, not some fake whatever, that we actually went out and solicited problems from the U.S. State Department. And Students would use the exact same lean startup methodology as the cl other classes, but instead of working on their problems, they were working on problems that were coming from various parts of the U.S. government. Your course uh, received a lot of momentum through Udacity, and a lot of folks like to point out that MOOCs sort of had their heyday, um, but has died down quite a bit. So I'm curious what your take on just the MOOC landscape or other online learning platforms look like today. Yeah, so, uh, you know, on full disclosure, I was uh, one of Sebastian Thrun's first investors. Uh, so I knew Sebastian from Stanford. And for me, uh, Udacity at the time was uh, not that I wanted to do a MOOC. But I really needed to solve a problem for the National Science Foundation, which was a good number of our students were uh, dialing in remotely, you know, through video conference. And here I was giving the same lectures week after week. And I realized that they wouldn't know whether I was in the room or not. Except mm -hmm. the problem was, is that, you know, talking heads for video is, you know, as, as an educator, I hated them. My students hated them. So how can I make this a little more interactive and interesting? talk about Udacity, I think the company's business model um, has radically changed. Talk about pivots and, and lean. It was originally trying to disrupt higher education. I think that was the whole premise of MOOCs. I think now what we found is they're actually disrupting what we used to call vocational education. But it's to provide these nano degrees, these very specialized vertical degrees in expertise that don't require you to go to a four-year or even two-year school. Um, and to provide companies with trained workers. Again, and this is the equivalent of 20th century teaching television repair or auto repair or, or you know, HVAC repairment. These are the verticals that we used to do in the 20th century. We're now just updating what those verticals are and we're changing the methods on how to do it. We used to have mail order courses. We used to have other things. And now we have things like Udacity pivoting to these nano degrees. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier disrupting education, and we know higher ed faces critics, but what do you think that it's doing right when it comes to teaching entrepreneurship, innovation, or, or both? Well, 
the thing that's gone right is that we finally realized that we ought to be teaching. When I first started teaching innovation entrepreneurship at Berkeley at Stanford, I'm trying to get this concept that we need a new way to think about, about how to teach innovation entrepreneurship. People would look at me like, Steve, you know, no, we just need to teach them how to you know, write a business plan and we need to teach them finance and we need to, <laughs> all those were nice, but <clears throat> we were just like not connecting. You tend to teach, and this is the problem for tenured educators, and I'm, I'm, this is not a pejorative, it's just an observation. <clears throat> it's just that it's real easy to get stuck in your own dogma and structure. And when disruption happens, it's very hard. It's not mm -hmm. impossible. You know, great ones manage to pivot as well to realize that something new has really come that's not a fad that you really want to think about that maybe we ought to be changing how we look and do things. And that's tough. You know, universities by design are not early adopters. Let me underline that. Universities mm -hmm. are, are by design, not early adopters. You don't want them to adopt the latest fad because by the time you get a, a syllabus approved or a new curriculum or whatever, if it's a fad, you just wasted a ton of time and resources. Mm -hmm. but, but you also want to decide whether you want to be a late adopter. And that's, you know, usually not attractive for students. Um, and so, you know, to figure out how to kind of, you know, constantly monitor what those changes are outside the building, and especially in one as dynamic as technology and innovation, is tough for a faculty. And, and, um, and I want to give, you know, I want to give kudos to the ones who have figured out how to do that. Are there any similarities between running a company and leading a classroom? You know, that's a great question. It's very funny. The first job I had in Silicon Valley was actually as a training instructor. You know, I taught microprocessor design. I taught, you know, finite impulse response filter design. And it was my first love. And didn't realize that actually training to be an educator was actually some training to be a leader. At least for my career as a marketeer in companies, the ability to kind of take complex systems, recognize patterns, and explain it in a way that my mother could understand was actually a skill not only for an educator, but was necessary for a VP of marketing and eventually a CEO because you had to communicate to customers and to, and to investors and, and to, the, you know, to motivate employees about what you're doing and why. And so the ability to kind of put together a curriculum to explain complicated things simply in a way that you see the light bulbs going on over students is, I, I think, a key component of both business and education. I think educators who are grappling with, you know, this rapidly changing landscape of what to teach, how to teach, uh, you know, are living in both one of the most confusing and exciting times in the world. Just trying to keep up with the changing shape of technology, that is, what pieces of tech do I teach inside the classroom uh, mm -hmm. versus what's available outside? What methodologies do I teach and how to take that tech into, into companies that's also changing and rapidly? And then, you know, how do I motivate students who, you know, are trying to decide whether innovation entrepreneurship is for them? I'm just impressed with the, with the scale and the scope of the job, and, and I'm grateful for everybody who's, uh, who's engaged in it. Great. Well, Steve, thanks so much again for chatting with me today. All right. Well, thank you. This podcast was edited by me, Sydney Johnson. 
be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, follow us on Twitter, your favorite podcast app, or wherever else you like to get your news. And tune in next week for more on the future of education. 